Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this very special spooky edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. It is our 113th episode. So, uh, but this is a special episode because we are joined by one of the founding members of the original Get Your Film Fix podcast, Brantley Palmer, who's going to talk to us about horror. We thought it was uh, poignant and specific that we have Brantley on this one because he's a horror fan. Uh, then we're going to move on. To, so, oh, then we're the, the podcast is about Carrie. So we're going to talk about Carrie, the original. They're going to move on to kind of a general discussion about horror in general and uh, talk to Brantley a little about how, how the how that how the sort of modern horror compares with old horror. Then we're going to finish it all up with our top five high school outcasts. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. We're all sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. See the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. Okay, guys. So this is not a particularly horror-related question, but um, I'm glad we got to. Do, I, I, I'm glad you guys were okay with my suggestion of Carrie. I'd never seen it before. Um, I'd been on a little bit of a Brian De Palma tip of the last sort of six weeks or so. Um, he's a he's a filmmaker I've never really um, appreciated or really taken a lot of time to you know kind of look into. And he's not he's of that sort of you know seventy school of Spielberg, Scorsese, Lucas. He's one that's always been kind of like less you know um, popular with me, or you know, some, he's he's been less in my consciousness with that with that group. Um, and I, I sort of have had this weird thought about him that he might be the sort of the least pretentious filmmaker, um, you know, in recent memory, of, or at least certainly in that class. And I know that kind of sounds weird because um, he does a lot of like sort of very sort of over dramatic things in his movies. He tends to up the drama, kind of up the music, kind of up the... I, you know, his movies are not subtle. I would say uh, is uh, one maybe uh, to, to not to put too fine a point on it, um, but I think it's because of that that he is not pretentious. Um, and so I guess my sort of lame opening question for you guys is: Is do you guys feel that same way? Um, and or am I totally wrong? I'm I'm glad you brought this topic up because. Um, I am also not real familiar with a lot of De Palma's work. I've seen, you know, a handful of his movies over the years, but I, I, like you, I've never really dug real deep into his movies. But, you know, kind of in contrast to what you're suggesting about him being sort of an unpretentious filmmaker, something that I, I took almost mostly away from Carrie is that it really kind of almost needed a pretentious filmmaker. And I think De Palma delivered in that way. Hmm. Um, you know, and I don't want to dive too deep into my thoughts on the movie as a whole, but you know, this movie needed to be directed, if that makes sense, uh, because what was on the page, I don't think delivered quite enough to at least keep me uh, interested. But you've got a lot of stylistic uh, choices that De Palma made that were very evident. Um, and kind of a lot of those film school tools that you know you might call pretentious were on display here, and I think that was a benefit. When you say on the page, do you mean like the book? Because it's a, it's based well, on a Stephen yeah. King book, based right? Or do you mean well, in the script? Uh, so it could be. I don't know. I don't. I, and this happens a lot. I'm, I'm as you know about is um, you know I don't know very much about Stephen King's novels either, but. Um, 
I got the impression that this was maybe one of his shorter books or one of his simpler books because basically it came down to the fact that the story seemed very basic to me. Hmm. And we can delve more into that later and kind of the more specifics there. But there wasn't, for me, whether it was the script or the source material um, or a little bit of both, there wasn't a whole lot there. Um, but I think De Palma maybe recognized that and made a conscious choice to say, okay, I've got to do a little bit something with my camera, um, you know, with my color palette, with my music cues all those different things that I feel like he had in his tool belt that like, I, like you said, might be considered pretentious if, you know, we saw them from, you know, Scorsese or, you know, somebody like that or Coppola that here, I felt like it needed to be there. Even yeah. it may, maybe it is pretentious still, but it just needed to be there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're saying the same thing. Like, I guess my, my, fa- the, what I'm saying about him being, you know, not pretentious or unpretentious is his, his just freedom and feeling that he can use those tools sort of whenever he wants. I think you're right though. Like this was a, there wasn't much sort of plot to this story. I think there's, you know, I often feel that with his movies, like there's, there's sort of like a very basic concept and there's not a whole lot of like plot development. There's, you know, he does a lot of set pieces for example. Um, And so a lot of the sort of running time of, of his movies are kind of, you know, these sort of tricks of the trade and, um, I think he's unpretentious in that, in the sense that he just he's not afraid to use them. Anyways, Brantley, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree with Lee. I don't have a huge knowledge of of De Palma's work, say for like some of his bigger films as well. So I don't know if I can speak a ton to like him being you know a super unpretentious filmmaker. But I definitely agree that uh, Carrie is like a pretty simple story, and it, it's very much a character driven piece and and you know maybe you can speak more to this Chapin, but it seems like De Palma really likes to kind of focus on more character focused films um mm-hmm. and really kind of um you know I, I don't know I guess the deal with the development and emotional development of, of his characters throughout his pieces I think that's very evident here um you know to Lee's story, point about Carrie Carrie is Stephen King's first book and it's one of his much shorter books <laughs> uh he has a tendency to get very long-winded so uh, I think this is probably one of his most straightforward stories as well. Um, but it is interesting how you bring up uh, the pretension because I feel like there was a couple, there's specifically three instances, and I'll, we can talk about it more as we delve kind of more into the film, where I think he kind of did ratchet up that kind of pretentious filmmakerness to a degree, for, or for lack of a better word. Um, and I thought it actually was done really well and really kind of tied into some of the themes of the film. Um, so I'll be interested to see, you know, what you guys think, um, you know, about that as we as we go on. Well, it's interesting because the the first scene of the movie, like I wasn't on board with it. Like the you got the scene in the locker room with like, you know, these kind of slow motion shots and music mm-hmm. music playing and like the the steam from the showers and it's like all like sort of like uh, unmotivated and oddly like stylized and like opera-ish and it just it it seemed out of place and that was an instance where i was just like okay like this doesn't this doesn't make sense like this is not elevating anything there's no motivation for Mm -hmm. this and maybe that's true still like maybe but as the movie progressed i just think i i became more interested in the filmmaking here uh and just and less so with the story that was being told because i just started to be like just kind of really enamored by those overly stylized shots and like the like i said the camera angles like something just on a like a a very slight tilt you know to to suggest that something isn't quite there and like they felt a little bit more motivated and and in tune with like maybe the psychology of of the characters in this movie um and maybe that's what he was going for because you know their actions weren't ultimately all that interesting but i do think that while it's probably not totally there, there is a really interesting story about the psychology of of both Carrie and then especially her mother. Um, and then even to like a lesser extent, just kind of like the, I don't know, the the overarching psychology of the high school high school bully, you know? Hmm. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Lee, because that's one of the three, basically the three moments I kind of referred to earlier where essentially those times where he goes into slow motion and he brings in that operatic music and i realized after watching it again that he he does that during 
the, like three kind of, I guess, like rituals or rites of passage that you, that you have um, growing up. And obviously in this first scene, it's her getting her period and, and kind of the I guess quote unquote loss of innocence that she's a woman now and she's you know the the rite of passage of moving on from being a, you know a girl to a woman so to speak um, and then he brings it up uh, a couple times later um, uh, God I'm trying to remember what the, the one was when they're at the uh, the dance where she finally is getting the chance to like slow dance and have like the prom experience that she um, uh, you know that every teenager pretty much gets to have in high school. And um, oh god, now I'm totally blanking. What well, I want to I want to stop was. on on that point because I actually think that's a a really kind of interesting like flip from this that scene at the dance, especially when she gets called on stage as the as the prom queen. Oh yeah, and, that was the other one. That was yeah. One. So yep. so what I think is really interesting there is that that scene where you have the suspense knowing that the the blood is up there and about to fall on her. Like, that is where the style of De Palma and the direction gets in the way, I think. Like, I think that's the, mm. that's the most interesting storytelling in the movie because you have, you know what's going to happen. You've seen the preparation for it. You, you know that she's being tricked and you're just sitting there kind of waiting as she's enjoying this moment. And it's this, you know, operatic, like, kind of slightly off focus or like, uh, or overexposed look uh, mm. that they have and, and that to me got in the way there where everywhere else I, I feel like it was more important but I mean isn't I mean I don't want to isn't these the sort of the idea there that um, you know you're you're watching this amazing moment from her perspective and then but you know it's going to be ruined in this awful way and, and that's the tension of that moment isn't I mean yeah and that's there I just felt like it, it was another instance of De Palma masking isn't the right word, but maybe in a way that's what it is kind of masking the lack of, you know, plot or story that he has by, you know, using his bag of tricks. And it's, it's consistent with all the stuff he's doing throughout the rest of the movie. So it didn't feel out of place. It just felt less necessary there. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I got to say, like, I wasn't blown away by this movie. Um, I know it's a classic, but it didn't really scare me that much. Um, I wasn't particularly moved by it. You know, like, am I am I bad to say that? No, I'm kind of with you. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I found I, I found some some things in it that I that I liked. I loved John Travolta in this movie um, and on that topic I, I read some things afterwards about how a lot of the credit that this movie has gotten over the years is uh in part due to people find it to be also very funny in addition to scary um and i don't know how much that's true but i do think characters like john travolta like were kind of a nice like reprieve from the drama here mm-hmm. um but i'm totally with you on this as a horror movie like i don't find it particularly scary in fact i think that there's it's very anticlimactic in a way because um everything happens and then ends so quickly and the best example for me or the two best examples are when she's going on her rampage she knocks down something from the ceiling and it kills the teacher that's been so nice to her yeah and then just 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 like that like and it's like that's over and then the same thing when she's walking down the street and the car is driving behind her and she just kind of turns around has her little psycho music play and the car flips over explodes and they're dead and then that's it that's over like everything was just okay that's it and then it all felt sort of anticlimactic and we've been kind of you know tiptoeing to this big uh you know finale the whole movie and it's sort of just boom there done everybody's dead and movie ends Hmm. yeah i mean it's i would agree it's certainly not like a a, a scary horror film it's really more of like a you know melodramatic coming of age story so to speak just with supernatural elements to it um but but i i I, I think to the point of her like essentially killing the the teacher who'd been so nice to her and basically the only person who escapes was the girl who got Tommy to go out with her and go to the prom. Um, yeah, Amy uh, Carol, Carol, yeah, yeah. Carol Clover, who wrote the book uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, talked about how 
in the in the movie she Carrie is essentially victim then hero then monster so it's like it's it's different than a typical horror film where where you have three separate characters essentially playing those parts she essentially embodies all three of them um and i think when she makes that turn to the monster so to speak at the end she just she doesn't care anymore it's just a matter of like killing and destroying anyone who's around because she feels like they're all they're all part of it they've all they're all laughing at her as her mom would say and and she's essentially the villain at that point that's interesting because you know i i agree with that that makes a lot of sense but like that it didn't feel like that idea was fleshed out very well like, no i mean y- yeah yeah i mean in the turn gen- is the turn is fast yeah in general like and 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 maybe i think it's an interesting conversation to have you know a larger conversation about movies but i find this with a, a, a lot of de palma's work like and a lot of directors like i i don't know what they want us to focus on brantley you said this was like a character kind of focused movie and i guess it is i mean we spend a lot of time mm. with carrie i'm not sure we know her very well yeah she's she's very dull like the character the character and sort of the 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 development of carrie is very dull and 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 you know we're like finally like as an audience we're anticipating and maybe even kind of hoping she's gonna have her revenge on people but at the same time like that kind of feeling is bifurcated by the amy irving subplot where she's doing this to help Carrie like she Mm -hmm. likes Carrie and so like we're also there's also some so it's like everything is kind of divided it's like yes we're hoping that that uh, Carrie will get revenge on what we know is going to happen but at the same time Amy Irving is doing this stuff to to help her and that's kind of a sweet moment like that that element was a little bit unexpected and nice but I have a question there do we know that for sure like at first was that her intention yeah I think so I think the whole time I I think so because I I think she's definitely she because in that opening scene, like when all the other girls are like throwing tampons at her and telling her to like plug it up, you can see that she's not like, she's not stopping it, but she's not really into everyone right. shitting on Carrie like that. So I, I think she kind of feels really guilty about the part she played in, in not, you know, stopping the other girls from, from being so horrible to her. I'd like to know if that's how girls are actually bullied in high school. You, they throw tampons at each other in the locker room. I think there's a lot of that shit with with the men, menstruating jokes. I would imagine. <laughs> it seemed it certainly seemed really ratcheted up in this movie. Like even before they get into the shower, they're playing the volleyball game, and I don't know. If oh, I've the ever first line of the ch- movie yeah. is like, yeah, like, it's like e- we're never gonna win with Carrie on our team. Yeah, eat shit, Carrie. Yeah, I thought yeah. the same thing. I was like, oh my god. But it's I also never, like I don't. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I just always, I just always think it's funny. It's like. And there has to be something behind this with, like, the way that he stylizes that scene in the locker room with, like, all these girls just, like, trotting around topless. And, like, it seems like such a male fantasy of a locker room in a way. But that doesn't tie in at all with the movie. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, that's what's interesting is that's what I'm saying. Like, you, like your tension is just drawn to these other places, you know? Like, you're, you're asked to, like you know like what is he trying to say with this like sexy shower scene and she's all by herself and then you know your your attention is just drawn to so many different places that I, that at the end I was like okay I guess this is Carrie's story and it, you know really that this it came to, came to my mind when they were cutting I think it was between it was when Billy or whatever the fuck his name is asks her out to the prom at the at the um when she's doing the research about telekinesis Tommy and, does. Billy's yeah. John Travolta. Sorry, Tommy, Tommy. does. But then yeah, Billy, no. but maybe at the same time, he's intercutting with like them getting the pig's blood or something. He was doing something. And I'm like, is this Carrie's story or is it not? Because we're sure spending a lot of time with these other people who are right. just going to get blood. Like, that doesn't seem like it should take up 15 minutes of screen time. Anyways, like, again, so I, I think this is a common problem for me where, um, and I tend to look at it like, what is the director trying to get me to see you know point my attention to it but Mm. it may just be a larger problem in that a film isn't very focused but then i find myself you know not really being into the movie because i don't know what i don't know what to focus on i don't if if this is about carrie what happened to her what was that what what happened to her at the end like well that's a good point too because at the end we almost get this dream of amy irving and Mm -hmm. it, it suggests okay 
you know how much of this is oh how much of this is she dreaming like what like how much of this is his her, is her story so that's a good point like it does I, and i don't know i don't know that every you know character piece or every movie has to be told from one specific point of view um you know i don't think that there's anything wrong with just watching each character's story unfold but it does in this particular case it, it feels scattered yeah, it, maybe this is giving De Palma too much credit, but I mean, I, I guess I'd like to think that that opening slow motion, not opening, but this slow motion early shots in the locker room are kind of like playing with that voyeur male gaze sort of like fantasy and then like flipping it on its head and, and kind of turning that scene that we as like a, maybe a male viewer think of as, you know, something that's like lurid and making it like specifically horrific for um well carrie one of the female uh characters in that scene but again i don't know maybe that's giving de palma too much credit i i don't know um i that was kind of what i got but i don't know chapin maybe you're a little more you're a little more experienced with his work maybe you can speak to, to yeah that i mean that I that certainly speaks to a theme he's uh been interested in in other movies voyeurism certainly is something he's explored a mm-hmm. lot um but i i don't know that that I don't know. I don't know that that is what that what's happening there. I mean, I, I understand that's an interesting, yeah. uh, an interesting way to look at it, where he is, where like you know, suddenly he's making us aware that we're the audience, and um, but then it kind of turns into this, to- you know, this from this idyllic kind of sexy, sexy shower yeah. to something awful, and you know, but it's like with the music, it sounded like the innocence of, of. Um, of youth kind of being spoiled there. I don't know. There's so much there. I just think that like, it's just a problem that I have that I just, I, and, and, and Lee, you said, you know, you, you talked about point of view to me. It's not necessarily like about what character we're seeing it from. I understand like we're going to cut, you know, between different characters and different storylines. It's more like what the movie is telling me to focus on. Like what, am, what is this movie, uh, you know, at the end of the day about? And, you know, I don't, I didn't feel like we did an like, like, Carrie's telekinesis was just there and it, it, it kind of exploded at the end at the prom but like the, it was still kind of muddy as to how it actually worked like you know what I mean I, I, I didn't know how much she was actually doing was she like electrocuting everybody why did she kill that teacher who was so nice to her um, I you know and so at the end of the day I was like alright like what what am I taking away here and you know De Palma is lauded as one of these lauded as one of these great filmmakers and so much of the time I walk away from his work you know and I just just because I've seen so many of them recently I'm just like all right (laughs) I mean it's sort of like a minute by minute thing with him it's like yeah I'm enjoying seeing this you know very lurid (laughs) you know sexual teenage shower scene and then I you know I'm I cut to the prom I'm, and I'm waiting for this pig blood and I feel the tension of this pig blood, but like, you know, it's sort of like, it's not, it, it doesn't equal the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? Like these, he's got these great set pieces, these great moments, but they just don't seem to work together. They're like, you know, pieces of a cloth stitched from different, you know, different fabrics. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and this is, and, and again, and you know, this will become clearer as we move into our next segment, but I'm far from, qualified to really delve into this deep but that's a bit of a problem with horror movies old and new i think that the movies aren't always equal to the sum of their parts they they you know they're almost built oftentimes on like a scene by scene basis uh and you kind of you know have this scary scene or this gory scene or this you know this moment where you know something jumps out and you have that jump scare whatever it may be I do think horror movies are guilty of that a lot where they they lose track of what their movie is actually about and what their characters motivations actually are and you know I think I think that might be a genre issue more so than maybe a De Palma issue here hmm but before we and I think that's a transition into our next segment but I think we should talk about Piper Laurie's character a little bit um, since one that's a huge character and it is a a motivating element uh, for the character's actions in this movie. Um, but also it's, I think one of the um, more lauded aspects of this movie, her performance mm-hmm. thoughts there. Yeah. I thought she was good. I liked uh, Sissy Spacek better. 
really I don't think Sissy Spacek was really that good in this movie. And on a side note, has was Sissy Spacek ever like thirty to fifty, or did she go from like eighteen to seventy? <laughs> yeah, she. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it happens with actresses. They just they stay yeah, eighteen, and then the, it wears off, and then they. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She just took like a thirty-year break and didn't make any movies. That's true. But anyway, yeah, I, um, I didn't. I, I thought SpaceX was fine in this, but I thought, and I think Piper Laura was maybe overacted a bit, or or I don't know, or was written in a way where she needed to overact. But I just find that character intriguing. I do too. Uh, I wish they would have explored it more. Yeah, I just think it, and not just her specifically, but that character type. I just think it's such an interesting, like, you can do so much with that because ultimately, you know, as, as we know from many movies and, and our, you know, real life, religion can drive people to just about anything. And in this case, like, you know, it, it drives her to ultimately try to kill her daughter uh, or yeah, actually does kill her daughter. But, like, even before that, like, you know, she drives herself, like, like insane. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I agree because rewatching it this time, I remember Piper Laurie's performance having been a bright spot in the film previously, um, but watching it again, I, I I sort of agree. I think she's a little over the top uh, with with her performance. Um, do you think she has to be though? Like that's what I mean. Like yeah, like, how do, how do I, you, I think how do, to a degree. Yeah, I just don't know how I, you play that subtly. Yeah, yeah, it kind of. I mean, I'm trying to think in horror films like like the religious care like other religious characters the only thing that's coming to mind is in the mist when um oh, i'm blanking on the female character in the mist who's like really religious and basically says it's like demons you know and right. go- or god smiting them but uh it's the marcia um, gay harden character in the movie Mar- yeah. thank you thank you yeah yeah but i i think you do definitely have to be a, l- a little bit over the top with that character just because of how brutal she is to her daughter i guess if she, if, she, if, she, if we didn't see the conviction that she had it would seem i guess really out of place that she's like locking her in that closet and stuff and forcing her to you know do her prayers and basically like calling her daughter a sinner just because she's menstruating which every woman is going to start doing at some point um yeah i guess you have to be a little over the top with that I will credit De Palma for all the religious iconography he put in. He certainly tied that in, both with that character uh, and yeah, throughout I mean, the film. He set dressed yeah. the shit out of that house. <laughs> yeah, well, and then, you know, when she dies, she's <laughs> she's up on the cross like Jesus, basically. And, well, that was, that, um, I mean, that was really on the nose, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, that was that was so obvious. And then um, Carrie pulling the house down. I, I assume that's supposed to be a reference to Samson who pulls the temple down uh, after being bloodied and beaten, but I, you know, I don't know for sure. So, d- d- is she case. pulling it down, or is like another force pulling it down? I got the sense that she was, and she had done enough structural damage that by the time she finally dies in the closet, <laughs> the, the house is already like falling in on itself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know, or if so much energy is expelled as she's dying that it's enough to to do that. I don't know. Huh. You know, I, I think part of the benefit of, of having Brantley here is that he can um, talk a little bit more intelligently about some of the older horror movies. Um, but, w- you know, we've actually, this past year, you know, we've been talking a little bit more about horror. We talked about Hereditary. Uh, we talked about Get Out. And, you know, I, I just think that there's, you're starting to see horror movies now trying to, like, reinvent itself, reinvent themselves, reinvent the genre a little bit and, like, do new things with it and i think at times it's effective but ultimately you know i've always said and we've talked about it a lot on this podcast and all through the years that you know the fear of the unknown is the most effective thing in horror and i think it always will be and you know that that to me is what's always been there in the good ones old and new um but you know i think carrie falls a little bit more into the camp of the well, the camp of the campy old horror movies. Uh, you know, maybe not quite to the extent of like the Evil Dead movies and things like that. But those are movies, and Brantley, you know this w- quite well that I've never liked. I, you know, I don't mm-hmm. respond to the camp elements of them. I don't find them particularly scary. And you know, I just think, you know, now like the, the I think the version of those movies to me now are just like the annual you know purge movies and 
you know, the hills have eyes. And, like, it, those to me are just the ones that they just churn out, that, like, they don't really have a whole lot of backbone to them. And, but they, you know, are what the horror fan is looking for. And, I, and I'm, I'm curious, I guess, a little bit about your thoughts. Just, one, because I know you like those older ones more. But, two, you do you agree that, like, though that doesn't exist anymore? They're trying to, like, reinvent the genre? Um, yeah, I, I definitely would agree. I, I'd actually say uh, one of the things that's kind of intriguing about the horror genre is that it's constantly reinventing itself. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I can't really think of another genre, maybe save for sci-fi that kind of reinvents itself as much as, uh, horror does. Um, I mean, you know, it, you've got, you know, your classic universal monster movies. You've got the monster movies in the fifties, which were fears of, you know, nuclear annihilation and nuclear, um, uh, you know, radiation. You had the slasher films that came in, in the eighties, which, well, late seventies, eighties, which I think is kind of where we started to see all those like unending sequels, like with the Friday the 13th films and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween, um, and, and lately, uh, well, actually, and what I always kind of think of as the delineating mark for modern horror films is like 96 on like post scream, basically, because scream took the, the, the slasher genre and just completely subverted it. Yeah. Um, and then kind of, so that, that kind of in my own head is where I think of as like the modern horror on, but I think lately there have been a lot of, a lot of horror films, which are dealing with more like social or thematic elements uh, masked behind um, the fear of the unknown uh, that you that you mentioned before. So I definitely agree it's a genre that reinvents itself, and it's one that kind of has been doing it unendingly for a long time. Jeremy or uh, Brantley, what's the what is the best mm. um, what's the best horror or like what's the best example of that or what's the best example of what you like to see in in horror that's come out in the last let's just say ten years. Uh, gosh, I mean, there's a few that I really have enjoyed. Um, well, Get Out, obviously, like you guys have mentioned, that that one I I really, really enjoyed. Uh, when we did the 100th episode, it, it would have probably been on my list had I not put the qualifier that it uh, had to have been out, uh, nothing within the past year. Um, and then ones like The Babadook or It Follows, I mean, I mean, those two really stand out to me as those same sort of, like... Uh, theme like theme based horror films rather than like scares and gore based horror films um those two for me kind of are ones i would go with Mm. yeah i mean i think uh, like what i've always liked about and i think what what um what i think like a movie like it follows does really well is that what i kind of always really like when those movies are done well is they are they are done done very creatively i think i think horror movie horror movies can be very creative because generally they're not given huge budgets and so they have to find a mm-hmm. way to kind of make a little bit of money go a long way and also you know like like people like fear is an interesting emotion to play on and it's not something you know it's kind of it's unique to the horror genre in a way i mean we see it in thrillers a little bit but um you know fear is an as an emotion i think like there are creative ways of of getting people to react that way um you know everywhere anywhere from like you know very disturbing images to jump scares to you know longer running like the like longer kind of reveals at the end of a movie for lack of a better explanation you know where you know something is so disturbing that you're left with that feeling but um and and also i think that and and, and so that's I, that's why i like them i mean at least when they're good and and, and i think it follows as a great example of that mm-hmm. where they kind of play on um those movies that really sort of elevate and transcend the genre to me are the ones that kind of play on fear in a way that that isn't isn't just about fear itself it's like you know that that movie is about i don't know sexuality or or you know it's i mean the 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 sort of the most the easiest metaphor is for you know uh, sexually transmitted diseases but but i think it's more than that i think it has a lot of sort of deeper connections and it just makes you feel a connection to real world things but it does it in this sort of very entertaining and kind of um I don't know, like a very emotional way. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm glad you talked about the theme for 
it follows because the more I've thought about the film, having seen it uh, a couple years ago, the more I've wondered, like, is it really just about sexually transmitted disease? Because that's what I took away the first time. But, you know, with a sexually transmitted disease, you don't just, like, pass it off to somebody and then you're done. You know, I, I think it kind of, the more I've thought about it, the more I felt like it dealt with some more, like, deeper themes, even not even necessarily, like, sexually related. I, I, I Like, maybe peer pressure and, and things like that. Like, you know, you have to join in, and then once you finally join in, that pressure's off kind of thing. Sure. Um, or or even just virginity in general, you know, like once you finally do it, you don't have it anymore kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. yeah and, and, and I think that's one thing that I really appreciate about the film is that I'm still thinking about it, you know, afterwards. Um, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to watch, as, you know, as much horror in the past year, especially with the do- my daughter as I uh, would like to. Um, but if I'm she's, still she's not with into any the horror film, movies yet. Yeah, you should probably <laughs> no, wait a little you know. longer for that one. <laughs> Well, I've tried. She just wants to play with her toys. So. Um, but yeah, Aaron, no, it's just it follows uh, is on. I know. <laughs> Come on, pay attention. But uh, no, I, I I actually really get excited when I watch any film, but a horror film especially where I, I'm really thinking about it a lot afterwards. Um, and it's because I. And, and I'm sure you guys kind of feel this way too, but you know, having going to film school and going through that, you kind of, you get like the, the layout and the map of film, so to speak. Right. So it's easy to kind of crack that code and you watch a film. You're like, okay, here's plot point A, here's plot point B, you know, et cetera, as you're watching it. So it's, it sometimes can be like a little frustrating and boring when you're watching a real run of the mill film. Um, but I, but any time I have the experience where I'm just like con- like still thinking about it afterwards, I kind of cherish that lately, because I, I used to feel that a lot when I was younger, and it's less and less and less as I've gotten older. So I kind of just try to hold on to it as much as I can when it happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, That's one thing I've been. I mean, in our recent you know redo of the podcast, which is not you know it's been nearly a year now, but. Um, it's like yeah, when when that movie kind of sticks with you, that's when you need to pay a little a little bit more attention to it. That when that's when you know like something it's more than just you know your average film. What good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. and that comes back to the point I made before and, and because you could say that about every genre, of course, that you know mm-hmm. the move when the movie sticks with you, there's obvious, you know, then it's time to start thinking about it and exploring it and and dissecting it a little bit. But I, I think the reason it's very relevant with the horror movie is because it's so absent often times and like i said they they do sort of function on this scene by scene basis because they can get away with it because the cheap scares or you know the gore or or whatever it may be is is you know attracting that that specific audience the the horror audience and and i i just think that and, and again brantley you can correct me or or uh elaborate on this but i just feel like you know like Chapin was saying about Carrie, like it, it's so hard to define what some of these even iconic horror movies are are about. And you know, yeah, maybe there's some deeper themes that I've just missed because I wrote these movies off as too campy or stupid or whatever. But I just feel like you know that it's so easy for the horror movie to not worry about that, to not have a deeper theme, and to not have you know mm-hmm. it be about something uh, and leave you thinking about it you know they maybe they're the closest thing to it that you know your average horror movie wants is for you to be you know like have a hard time sleeping that night because you're thinking about it in that way but not in a you know this was a well-made movie type of way yeah no i i would agree i think you're you're run-of-the-mill slashers you're not going to have a ton of deeper meaning i mean people have tried to like tried to talk about how you know with the final girl especially when they're a virgin how it's like religious overtones and things like that (laughs) to that degree you know i don't i I don't think the filmmakers are really thinking that when they're making those types of films um you know carrie carrie's i think a uh, i don't think there's a lot too much deeper theme to it than that it's a it's a revenge fantasy that i think a lot of people can identify uh, men and women who have gone through high school and either been bullied or teased or whatever and have had that fantasy themselves of being able to get back and and taking power from being powerless 
Um, I know there's other ideas about um, it essentially being a, the theme of like women's empowerment and women's sexual liberation uh, as well. Um, because, you know, this is all happening after she gets her period. So therefore, like, it's her awakening as a woman and her uh, the beginning of her, you know, I guess, sexual I- identity. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a d- much deeper theme to it than really the revenge fantasy, honestly. But, like, all those things um, that you talked about are, are I, I clearly... Would agree that- all all those things you talked about are clearly there in Carrie, and, but I think mm-hmm. I think, but I don't know that the movie like earns those things. Like I, it doesn't feel like it's that good of a movie. Like that's a lot of subtext. Like that you know is is there, and like you could credit credit it a lot. Maybe that's what people have always credited it for. But it didn't feel like that w- was well done and well explored. So like I feel like in the after the fact, like with tons of these horror movies and you you know you made a good example like the you know the, the the lost sexuality of the the lone surviving character in a horror movie is you know it's so easy to like you know connect those two things uh in a horror in the horror genre for some reason but it's it's after the fact it's never there while you're watching the movie which i feel like is a is a problem so we're going to take some time real quick to read a viewer email and this one comes from Lee's wife Lydia. <laughs> so, even more a reason random, to a random listener, a random listener, <laughs> even more reason for one of you guys to send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and here is what she says in regard to our office episode. Uh, just real quick, Brittany, did you get a chance? To, have you listened to our office episode yet? I have. Okay, yeah. great. Then, because I have a follow up question for you after this. In the last episode, oh, okay. you spoke about the David Brent Life on the Road movie not working. I think the main reason that the movie couldn't ever work is because it's too much Brent without the other characters to balance him out. Brent is hilarious, but he's too much at times. And the inter- interactions with the others that helps make his awkwardness, pain, and desperation to be, like, more tolerable. So two hours of just him without the others doesn't seem like it could ever work. Just a thought. And I have to agree with Lee. The best part of our wedding was definitely the David Brent dancing. That and you know, that and, you know, committing ourselves to one another <laughs> and publicly expressing our love in front of family and friends. <laughs> Um, she also mentioned that you had a sexy voice, Lee, but um, I disagree with that. Whereas yeah, I disagree with so most I. of the rest yeah. of the email, especially on that last, especially on the office one. You sound we're very stuffed up, and we had to hit, listen to you <laughs> a couple of times. And uh, I tried not to. Um, so I, you, you claim this is your allergies, Lee. Is, is your wife like putting dander and stuff in the bed so you can keep this sexy voice that she enjoys so much? That must be what's happening, yeah. Oh, I don't understand. Isn't everything dead out there in in Boston at this time of year? Like, what is making you allergic? I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know. Okay. This, <laughs> I'm I'm not a doctor. I I do think that's a good point. I mean, I haven't. Has, did Lydia watch Life on the Road with you, Lee? Uh, she didn't. But uh, it's, just... it's a. No, but it's a great point. No, she's I, absolutely right. I, I agree. It's a great point. I think it's. I think it's total. Like it. Like. And it made me think of you know the office like what we kind of, one topic we didn't really talk about is how kind of well balanced it is which I think is what Lydia is referring to here like you've got these really awkward funny moments but it's also kind of nicely balanced with these you know more tender moments which are then nicely balanced with back to the awkwardness and I think that balance is I think one thing I really admire about um, about that show. Um, so Brantley, what what were your thoughts? Did you did you did you ever get into the office like we did um, back in the day? Oh, I definitely got into it. I don't think I got into it as much as you guys well, have yeah, gotten yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but I definitely uh, watched the British Office uh, before the American version because I remember watching the pilot for the American version and saying, "Oh, this is." garbage like why would they just do a word-for-word remake of the british version that's so (laughs) this feels so stilted and boring but uh at the risk of being real basic i I think at this point i actually enjoy the american office more than the british office after having rewatched. i know i know it's controversial talk about a a Uh, one-way ticket off the podcast (laughs) thanks for joining us i just (laughs) Uh, I, I have. You could just say you didn't want to come American, back. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched the American version like like five times now, and it just it has grown on me so much more. Stuff I really disliked in like first viewings, like especially the eighth and ninth seasons when Steve Carell's no longer there. 
um, have just. I, I love the movie. Uh, the movie. I love the show in spite of its flaws because I'm not pretending that there are not tons of flaws with the U.S. version. Um, but it's really become much more endearing to me um, as time has gone on and I've rewatched it more and more. It's been a while since I've rewatched the U.K. version, so perhaps I should do that again. Um, but yeah, that is my very controversial <laughs> opinion on The Office. That from an enjoyment standpoint, I enjoy the U.S. version more. Although. I would certainly concede that as a television show, the UK version is is a better show overall. So you may not remember this, Brantley, but you know I like everybody at least here scoffed at the pilot episode of the American version and, and wrote it off. But mm-hmm. I uh, you you convinced me at video headquarters to rent the first couple seasons <laughs> of the American one and give it another shot uh, back when we were in college and and you know. The rest is history. As, you know, obviously, the the show did turn out to be quite good. Although I disagree, I think the show imploded when Steve Carell left, and they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. It's sort of the sort of the opposite of what happened with, uh, or what they did with Life on the Road, where they got rid of everybody else. But it is kind of proof that you need mm. all those pieces for it to to function. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and, and that's definitely how I felt at the beginning and i think it definitely took them a long time to find their footing but i think once they did they actually there's a there's a lot to enjoy in those later seasons uh especially once they kind of figured out how to handle him not being on the show anymore right but you know here's the one thing i do want to say about the first season of the u.s version everyone kind of thinks the first season is a (laughs) copy of the uk but it's really just the first episode yeah i think so like they're their own show by the second episode Yeah, I no, no. I think I think the second episode is the uh, is the um, like uh, the they bring in um, Larry Wilmore for the like racial diversity talk or something because uh, which I but I'm pretty sure that's the second episode and that's like kind of its own its own separate thing from the UK version. So it's so weird that they that they did the first one. I was like, I'm basically like a shot for shot remake. But yeah, anyway. all I can think is that's like a, the studio wanted it that way or something like that. Right. But I don't know. I also have not seen Life on the Road, and from your guys' discussion, I don't know. Oh if my I god, will. don't bother! It sounds like it's, it's not worth it's it. So yeah, bad. it's so bad. Yeah. Okay. I, I will not. I will not bother. I was also surprised to see a television show on the Get Your Film Fix uh, podcast feed, but uh, I did enjoy it. So this week. In honor of Carrie, which none of us seem to really like that much, we're going to do our top five high school outcasts. Um, any criteria, boys? Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely had some. Um, well, I'm calling this my John Hughes memorial list uh, just in general. I was going to do Breakfast Club alone, and then I realized I didn't have any John Hughes on here. So it's my John Hughes memorial. And then the only other criteria I had was that the film has to actually take place like during school like the school year so anything that um dealt with high school kids that was in the summer like uh um, okay. kings of summer or like way way back i didn't include anything like that lee uh no not really um i uh i, I think a lot of it kind of same as brantley like all of mine had to happen during the school year i'm looking looking at my list and but yeah i didn't really go in with any criteria other than that you know they had to be in high school Okay, well, why don't you kick us off with your number five? Okay, so this is at my number five only because I am not 100% sure that, that he was in high school. I think he was. Um, <laughs> it makes sense that he was, but it's uh, Nicholas Holt as Marcus in About a Boy. No, he was younger. Okay. Are you sure? Because yes, all his, like, his girlfriend is older. Like, no, no, no. I think no, he was no, like no. a freshman. No, 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 no. No, that doesn't I think count. So. That's wrong, and uh, you're fired. Chapin, you're, you, well, we already got rid of Brantley, so you're the only one left. So, it's you and Jeremy alone. Yeah, yeah. And Jeremy never has time anymore, so it's just going to be me. No, no, oh, he was okay. no, he was too. He was young. All right, I don't know that. I, yeah, now that because uh, I'm thinking, I looked, like, I'm just and it didn't the, say like what grade he was in or anything. Okay, well, let's just say feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Let us know how old Marcus was. <laughs> Nicholas Holt was uh, was born in 1989, and so they must have filmed it in 2001. So he was 11. So I don't think he was in high school. All right. Well, I'm going with it anyway. Oof. That's a good. That's a good outcast. Okay, go. That's... It's a school outcast. 
<laughs> okay, Brantley, how about you go ahead? Your number All five. Right. Okay, well, okay, here's the thing. My top five, my number five might be controversial too. So if, if you guys are like, no, that's bullshit, let me know. I'll, I'll take a vote. But it's uh, it's Schmidt, Jonah Hill's character from uh, 21 Jump Street. Be- because the beginning, he is actually oh, in high totally. school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was b- bullied. And then they go back to high school as the cops. And I know, like, Schmidt kind of becomes more of, like, the cool kid. Yeah, so that's where Channing I would Tatum's disagree. Because like, I, uh, I thought about that movie. But I think Channing Tatum becomes more the outcast in... Oh, I'm totally fine switching it to Channing Tatum's character. I just I don't remember what his was. I know Schmidt was uh, Jonah Hill, but yeah. <clears throat> I actually think Channing Tatum is really funny when he's the outcast in that movie too with the high school kids. It it actually is uh, yeah, some of the best humor I think in the movie. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Is that is it? If you guys say no, bullshit. Twenty One Jump Street doesn't count. I'll if the no. vote says no, no I'm, I'm going to allow it. But... I'm going to allow it because okay. it, well, it, it, right. it, it was embarrassing enough if you listened to Eminem in high school, much less styled yourself after him. <laughs> <laughs> okay so i'm gonna go my number five is cameron from ferris bueller's day off and i did not give any criteria here but i i all of my picks i i realize now are people that i like and have affection for um and kind of admire their roles as outcasts in high school and cameron is one of them i think he was principled in a way i think all these guys are principled in a way and so um yeah he's my number five that's a great pick um, all right, yeah. I'm going to switch out my number four just because um, I sort of like Brantley's idea of a John Hughes memorialist here. I did have a Breakfast Club character, but I'm going to replace it with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Brendan and Brick. I, I, um, I, I, I told my friend that I knew that that was going to be on this list. So <laughs> I, I'm not as huge a fan of Brick as I think a lot of people are. Um but I do think that this is a, a unique pick for the list because it's not an outcast in like the most common sense of the term. Like it's not what you think of necessarily. But like he is very much like an outcast. Like he he stays away from everybody else and he sort of just is on his own. And and I think it creates sort of an interesting character uh, that um, JGL plays really well, obviously. Um, but again, Brick is at, I could sort of take it or leave it. I, I I never really fell in love with that movie and the style that Ryan Johnson went for there, but uh, that's going to be my number four. Yeah, I knew that was going to be on this list. Cool. Yeah, I uh, I'm kind of annoyed because my like four through two are like, uh, or some of my top four. Are, like I thought of them and I wrote them all down, and then as I was looking online for more, I was like, oh, just these can show up on like every list for like <laughs> outcast but, but my number four is daniel larusso and the karate kid uh uh oh. <laughs> you know new kid in town not making any friends getting chased on the beach by the bullies uh has to learn to karate to defend himself uh that's that's my number four classic that's pretty good yep how are those sequels any good no, no. don't bother copy <laughs> that um all right my number four, again, someone I admire, someone who chooses to be an outcast. And that's from one of my favorite high school movies, and that's Cat from Ten Things I Hate About You, played by uh, Julia Stiles. Um, okay, mark it down. 5805 Julia Stiles makes top five. <laughs> <laughs> is, you, is she on your top hated list, Larry? I actually have very. I, I've actually never really minded her. Like, I actually think she's been in a lot of good movies, but she mm-hmm. she sort of like it's, doesn't she like not act anymore? Doesn't she like she shows up on all these like random clickbait articles about like f- famous actresses who work like a regular office job now or something? I've also seen her come up as like famous actresses who are transgender, and then it, you click and she's not in there, and that's how it, yeah. <laughs> She, like she was how, in no, two thirds of us have admitted that we uh, click on, click click on those. <laughs> she's in all the born movies, and she was in uh, Silver know, Linings yeah. Playbook. Yeah. No, she still acts definitely. Yeah, she was in that. Yeah. Oh, th- I think that like modern day Othello movie. Oh, that I thought was like oddly good. Yeah, with um, Josh Hartnett. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I I like her a lot in this. Uh, she was like formerly popular. And has like sworn off men, and yeah, I think I love that movie. So that's my number four. Lebo. Another JGL film. Yeah, JGL featuring yep. All right. Joseph Gordon Levitt. Uh, so 
my number three is this is a movie I definitely would need to revisit. It's not one that I'm running out to revisit in a hurry, but I I actually like really surprisingly liked this movie a lot when I saw it. Um, but it's Amy played by Shailene Woodley in The Spectacular Now. Have you guys seen that movie? No, yeah, I, yeah, I really liked it. But, uh, is so it good? It was really good, and, and Shailene Woodley was really good, and I actually mm-hmm. think she's a really good actress, and Miles Teller, I think, is great. I like him in a lot of stuff, um, and he's really good in it, too. And uh, she just sort of plays this, like, really, she plays very well this, like, awkward, like, she's not uncool. She's just, like, awkward and, like, uncomfortable with herself, and and she ends up in this relationship with, with Miles Teller, who's, you know, sort of, like, falling apart. Uh, and, you know, it's a on like, an unexpected relationship and and kind of uh goes i think on a direction that you would have you would have expected it to go as a result but um i just think a you know a a kind of a a nice good understated performance from her uh from shailene woodley in that movie and again i was really surprised at how much i liked it interesting okay brantley number three all right, my number three is a character named Hal Hefner, and it's from the movie Rocket Science. Have either of you guys seen mm-hmm. that? Nope. Ah, uh, so it's a it's a debate film. It's it's a high school film. He the character is a stutterer, and so kind of the last thing you think he'd do is join the debate team, but uh, that's what he does. And it's kind of your classic coming of age story where he kind of gains confidence and that sort of stuff. But um, it doesn't play to a lot of the standard tropes of your regular coming-of-age films. You know, he doesn't get the girl. He actually pines after her and is, and uh, doesn't get her. The girl is actually a young Anna Kendrick um, in the film and um, doesn't, really, like, overcome his stuttering either. It's just kind of... It's kind of like a life-goes-on sort of film, and I really appreciated that um, about it. And um, it's actually really, really good. I'd, I'd recommend it if you guys uh, want to check it out sometime. Cool. It's always good to get some recommendations. Okay, yeah. my number three is also a small, little, unknown, independent film, um, and it features a character named Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> no, just joking. My number three is Harry Potter um, from the Harry Potter film series. Um, this was a little bit of a stretch for me, you know, but um, I like Harry a lot. <laughs> I think a lot of other people do. <laughs> is he an outcast, though? Yeah, he's a little bit of an outcast, don't you think? <laughs> I think that there maybe are some Certainly characters. Certainly, his family he is. Well, yeah, with his his uncle and aunt and stuff. But like, I I think there are maybe some characters in that story that are perhaps more appropriate. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I, if Harry's an outcast. He's super famous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fine. So here's here. I think it's a great pick, Thank Chapin. You. I'm on your side. You you pick whoever you want, but. Um, do you guys think it's bad that I'm a librarian and I've only read the first Harry Potter book and only seen like the first two or three movies? No. Well, so I, I just have never got I've never gotten into it. Yeah, if you listen back to some old podcasts, Brantley, you were always giving me shit for seeing the Harry Potter movies. Um, Was I? Yeah, you were. You always thought they were just oh. like kids' movies, but I think the movies oh, are all pretty okay. good. The, I'm I'm actually currently reading the fourth book. I've never read them all. I've read the first three now, um, oh. but uh, I felt like it was about time I, to. Uh, I to see what this Potter craze was about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, a, hopefully no, I'll read them to my daughter someday. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that'd be sweet. I absolutely have no re- no yeah. motivation to read them. Katie's read them like 15 times a piece. And, like, I mean, I don't think any book should be over 400 pages, much less a kid's book. But um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of with you there. Uh, okay. Uh, what is your number two, Lebo Jones? All right. My number two. This movie has come up on top fives uh in the past but i don't think at all in the uh the latest uh uh iteration of the podcast it is the character of agnes played by rebecca liljeberg ringing any bells oh yeah rebecca liljeberg yeah sure 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 uh from lucas moodyson show me love uh it's a swedish film a uh, movie that I've always really liked and would recommend to just about anybody. Um, in fact, Lucas Moodyson has made a lot of great movies. Um, but uh, Agnes is uh, a pretty stereotypical outcast in high school. Uh, she's got a crush on the popular girl, and you know, which obviously being a lesbian adds to the drama and the uh, outcast niche of her character. Um, 
but it's such a good movie and it's such a i always i always felt that this was such an accurate representation of high school students and and kids that age just like the little subtle ways that you see them behave throughout the movie um i always remember there's this one scene uh of a of a guy about getting ready to kind of go out on like a group date and he's just spending that extra minute in front of the mirror making sure like his hair looks right and it's like the look on his face was just was so perfect for like what that character was thinking uh so obviously that has little to do with the character of agnes but she is definitely an outcast um the movie is show me love directed by lucas moodyson leave it to lee to put a great pick i don't think i've ever seen this have you seen it chapin it's great nope never even heard of it (laughs) it's great he also did a movie called together with uh ah, shit now i can't remember his name the guy that plays um that plays uh, Michael Blomquist in the Swedish version of Dragon Tattoo. Uh, oh, I, I can see the face of the Michael actor. I don't Michael his name, Michael Nivquist or something like that. I think is his name. <laughs> okay. the, the Swedish version is called <laughs> "Fucking Amal," but somehow that yeah, yeah. translated to "Show Me Love" <laughs> yeah, for the American I was, audience. I, mm. I always got a kick out of that. <laughs> interesting. Amal <laughs> is the name of the town that they live in. Oh, interesting. Okay, but I love how if you I love how if you type in okay. if you type in like in the search on IMDb if you type in the Swedish version if you just start typing fucking show me love is the first movie that pops up. Nice. <laughs> well, I'm um, very, very suddenly feeling very basic with my list here. Um, I don't have like Swedish things or out of the box picks or, like Harry, or Potter, Harry Potter. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my uh my number 2 is uh Max Fisher from Rushmore. Uh Rushmore, I, I in the old podcast, I I think um I t- told you guys, but it has a special place in my heart. It's the uh uh one of the first one of the movies my wife and I watched on our first date, so it's always kind of been special uh to me and I actually haven't seen it in a long time uh because of that, I think. Um, partially just because uh you know you kind of want to keep um it special and where where it was in your your history but anyway um i mean jason reitman <laughs> just like um did i just say jason reitman and not jason yes, schwartz yeah, he did <laughs> i was like wow sorry jason he's schwartz. versatile yeah okay yeah uh jason schwartz just like absolutely kills it uh in the role as max and it's just like so funny and um God, it cracks me up every time when I think of the scene where he's sitting there with uh, Luke Wilson and <laughs> gives him shit about the, the scrubs and stuff he's wearing yeah. and everything. Oh, our scripts. Uh, oh, are they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but that's uh, that's my number two. Uh, I do really like that movie, and I'm not a big Wes Anderson fan by any means, but... Yeah. Yeah. No shit. Um... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like that's like if we were to do like a bingo for like this podcast, <laughs> me mentioning he's not a Wes Anderson fan would be like the center yeah. free square. Yeah. Okay. So predictable. My number two <laughs> is uh, Hannah from the film Hannah. Oh, that's a good. Oh pick. wow. Yeah, I really, I yeah, really remember enjoying one. this movie. Uh, I remember you guys did a podcast on it. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, me and Brantley did it. I don't yeah, think we were yeah. huge fans, but um, I. I think I enjoyed it. I remember enjoying it. I really like this movie. I, 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 uh, what's that direct? Joe Wright, I think, is a very interesting director. Um, I thought Atonement was really, really interesting. Um, and that one in particular, I, I, mm-hmm. I, lo- I kind of really, really enjoyed Hannah, particularly, um, Sarazir Ronan's performance in that, which was foreshadowing her brilliant performance in the movie I still haven't seen yet, Lady Bird. My uh, number one yeah. is Crispin Glover playing George McFly. And Back to the Future. Mm. Okay, yeah. No, nothing. No, no, no. That's that's a great. That's a good one. No, Especially, it's, yeah. It's and it's unique it in that you know he's seen his father being awkward and yeah, that's a good. Yeah, pick. Marty is is cool in high school. Yeah, Marty is cool even though he's short. Um, okay, <laughs> Brantley, how about your? Not a lot of criteria for cool and uncool in your high school. What's your number one, Brantley? <laughs> Uh, okay, so my number one, I, again, I feel this is very basic, but this was the first character I thought of uh, when uh, Lee recommended the high school outsiders, uh, and that's Tracy Flick from Election. Yeah. Um, 
is just like the first thing that came to my mind. And I guess it could kind of be argued she's not so much an outsider, but I think she kind of is in her own little like nerd kingdom of like being really into to politics and really just, you know, trying to, you know, get all of her extracurriculars and, and be such a good student. Uh, so that's my, that's my number one. She was the first person I thought of. That's a good pick. I, I have to see that movie. Again. Yeah, me too. I, I remember being yeah. very disturbed. I, I always, by I always those, think it's depressing. Yeah, me too. Like those early, uh, the early, um, what's that guy's name? Uh, Alexander Payne movies. Um, yeah. I, and and aside, yeah. have any of you guys ever so, seen Downsizing? I, no, I never saw it. Uh, no, I it's never a, watched a very it. Interesting movie. I'd be interested to see what you guys think about it. Anyways, um, okay, my number one is also Max Fisher from Rushmore. Um, again, he's. Nice. He, I think he chooses Outcast. Being an outcast himself, he's his own man, and mm. if if the world doesn't like him for it, he doesn't give a damn. So that's my and number it, one. If, if I knew we were repeating picks, I would have kept Cameron from Ferris on my uh, my list. Well, I can't. No. I can't just throw out my number one, can I? I suppose not. No, unless, unless you have like a really good. I think it's a great pick. Yet. Excellent. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Brantley, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. And given the way things have been going with all of us, I bet that's going to happen sometime soon. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, Tune in next week when we'll definitely be back right away with a follow-up podcast. (laughs) (laughs) If you you promise it on air, it has to happen. Well, the thing is that you can just post this whenever we feel like next week will be on. That's true, yeah. So once we've got another (laughs) one recorded, I'll post this one, and it'll be brilliant. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.